You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Billy Goodnick is a horticulturist, landscape architect and educator in the US that runs the Crimes Against Horticulture Facebook group. If you're on Facebook, definitely check it out because it's good for a laugh and it might even make you question the way you do things. I thought I'd get Billy on the show and chat about some of the ways we can fail at horticulture. G'day Billy, welcome to the show mate. Well, thanks for having me on all these few thousand miles away. It's an honour. I think it is pretty cool to be able to talk to people from around the world, especially people in the US where obviously things are a lot different to here in Australia. A lot of different, from what I can see, a lot of the same too, too, especially in terms of our growing conditions, our plant palettes. So much of our stuff comes from, from where you are in South Africa. I mean, the, the five Mediterranean regions have a lot in common. So, you know, we, we share quite a bit too. It'd be different than if you were interviewing me from the Black Forest of Germany and I was trying to relate to, to your plant material. That's true. So where you are, you're in California, right? Yeah, I'm in Santa Barbara, which is a beach town about 100 miles north of Los Angeles, about 400 miles south of San Francisco, so right on the coast. We're on this shelf. It's very scenic. Go ahead and Google it sometime, in that we've got a mountain range that's maybe only a few miles back from the beach, so you have the drama of the mountains pushing up. They're not huge. They're, you know, 3,000 foot or so. And then right offshore, you've got the uh, Channel Islands. And it's very scenic. It's a kind of tourist economy, uh, along with a lot of R&D and stuff like that. Plenty of sunlight. And do you get much rain there? Not this year. We're, you know, the whole West Coast is is mega drought. Average rain here, talk about average 18 to 20 inches. So you know, it, it, it's a coastal, we get it only in the winter months, and uh, pretty much dry summer, and foggy, uh, we call it June gloom, and May gray, right. that's the beginning of the end of our spring and early summer, get a lot of coastal fog, and then by late summer, we start getting what, what are known here as the Santana winds, you get high pressure inland, pushes over the mountains, kind of superheats everything, and you get offshore winds that dry things out, and then we keep our fingers crossed that by October, November, we'll start getting some rain again. And last year, I can only remember two really rainy days mm. in the entire winter. It's getting close to terrifying. Yeah. No, that's not good. I think a lot of Aussies can relate with that too, even though some of us have had a bit more rainfall this year. Yeah. But yeah, it's not good. Well, the the, the new normal is that there's no normal. Yeah, good point. <laughs> and we're all adjusting to it, you know, planting designs, uh, water agencies that are incentivizing everyone to murder their lawns and, you know, go another direction. And, and uh, it, it's done some good. And I'm, I've been a messenger here in Santa Barbara. I've hosted a TV show. I've written locally on the topic for blogs and local magazines and stuff like that. And I'm kind of one of, one of the voices. Yep. And we'll show some links in the show notes about some of your TV work so that some of our listeners can go and check out the garden, <laughs> uh, the garden odd what was it? The Garden Odd? No, well, it's, yeah, it started out the Garden Wise, Wise guys, guys. Me and another That's guy it. named o- Garden Wise Guys. And we had no idea what the hell we were doing. <laughs> and each episode was on a topic that had to do with sustainable design. But we would have fun and turn one into like a Twilight Zone episode. And another would be like a bad sci-fi movie. Uh, Journey to the Center of the Dirt <laughs> was quite memorable where we went underground and we sort of spoofed a really bad old sci-fi movie, Journey to the Center of the Earth. But it, it helped me figure out how to message, so to, so to speak. Plus, I've been teaching some form of adult education for about 30 years, so I'm pretty comfortable you know, talking about my ideas. And that went on to teaching college-level stuff and just writing and blogging and TV and stuff like that. So I'm a big fish in a very small pond. Mm. Well, you also have a Facebook group that I know a lot of people such as myself sort of get a lot out of, whether that's just a few chuckles or whether you may be, we're finding, especially people like me, like I'm finding by checking out that group, I'm asking questions like, why is that a crime against horticulture? Well, let's give the full title. It's Crimes Against Horticulture When Bad Taste Meets Power Tools. And I think it, it pretty well sums itself up. It is that 
It's a crime against horticulture. I think if you're just not letting plants, well, it's like with kids, you know, if you stifle them and you don't let them achieve their full potential. Same thing with plants. I'm at my heart, I'm a landscape architect. That's how I make my living. All this other stuff is my own ego inflation and needing people to nod when I say funny things and all that. But I make my living as a landscape architect and my philosophy, there's very few formal gardens around here. Everything's you know, fairly casual and naturalistic looking for most people. So this kind of force fit of everything needs to be pruned, everything needs to be made into some sort of Euclidean shape. You know, it's a shipping container or it's a hockey puck or a pyramid or a pancreas or, well, not not a lot of pancreas (laughs) out there. So partly teaching adult ed, taking photos. This is in the days of 35 millimeter slides and Kodak carousels. I would load up my carousel with some kind of heinous crimes also and comment on those and have a little bit of snarky fun. I'm a New Yorker originally, and I think it just comes with the territory. Fits the stereotype of being a little on the snarky side. So I found that getting a laugh and then following it with a real lesson was a really valuable teaching tool. So showing some, you can show people examples of things that are right, and that's part of teaching. You can also give them something that's wrong and explain why you think it's wrong. And I think at the heart, that's what crimes against horticulture is, although sometimes we just drift off into pulling our hair out and ripping our eyes out and hoping people will will pay attention. So uh, the tool of Facebook didn't come around for me until you know, 10 or 12 years ago. But by then I already had a supply and kind of a a shtick in terms of pictures and snarky captions. I was writing for a local website and every year a local organization called Santa Barbara Beautiful would give out awards for beautiful homes and buildings and signs and gardens and things like that. And at my blog, I would do the Santa Barbara Not-So-Beautiful Awards, and that was an opportunity to, without actually identifying somebody's front yard, because <laughs> <laughs> they were all local photographs, would be to have a little bit of fun and at the same time give out the award for the stupidest pruning of a bougainvillea or something like that. And that carried on into my classes, and uh, having Facebook as an app, as a uh, outlet for that, it just naturally migrated over there. Mm. So it's been up about 11 years. And the last time I checked, we had, I, I don't believe this, but it's true, 11,000 followers. And then the page is also set up so people can contribute their own photos. And that's really a lot of fun. I'll get a photo from Romania or you know, I'll, I'll, quite a few people uh, uh, down your way, a lot of uh, Aussies chiming in with their photograph. Most of it seems to be utilities, pruning trees that were planted under utility lines and doing some, yep. some pretty heinous stuff. But, but that's where the, uh, the Facebook stuff started. Mm. So when we're talking about when bad taste meets power tools, I think it's, it's interesting to think about the mentality that we approach the garden with. What would you say would be the mentality of someone who approaches a garden with poor taste? Well, saying it's poor taste is very judgmental and a little bit arrogant, <laughs> and uh, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy that. Well, there's two sides to that coin. Around here, there's a lot of unskilled labor that own trucks and own power tools, and that's how they make their living. And I think we're supposed to say, God bless them all, but I don't want to look at that. <laughs> but but it's, it's self-feeding. If there's enough examples of garbage out there that everyone accepts that as, oh, that's what you do to a garden, and then you hire a gardener, well, let me differentiate. I differentiate between gardeners and yard janitors. And to me, a gardener is someone who knows plants. They've got a horticultural basis. They know that this abelia grows a certain way. And if, if uh, it gets too big, here's how and when you prune it. And this is how you apply water and you fertilize once in a while, etc. 
The rest of the people are a janitorial mindset. And I don't take anything away from janitors when they're cleaning offices and gymnasiums and stuff like that. Their job is to make things neat and safe. And that's fine in a lot of our world. But when that mentality is transferred to a garden, I can't stand that. But the people who are willing to write a check at the end of the month and pay these people and reward them for it are part of what keeps proliferating the aesthetic. It's just accepted. It's like you don't see it anymore. Mm. And it's also the cheapest thing to mm. do. You know, you start up gas-powered trimmers and you cut one horizontal line over the top and you've got a hockey puck. And then that looks weird. So you have to make it perfectly round, you know, along the sides. Uh, you start losing all the lower growth. So, of course, you start trimming off everything. So you've got a dish perched on top of three legs and that's a garden. Mm. And when people call that topiary, oh, well, people call that topiary, which it isn't. It's just mindless pruning. Topiary is a real art and there's a place for it. There's also a time for it. Unfortunately, it was like four or 600 years ago. <laughs> you know, other than historical topiary gardens continuing to be topiary, I just, it, to me, it's an aesthetic that's passed. So there's a level of love for the natural shape of a plant almost with someone who has good taste. You know, we, we love the plant for what it is. We don't try and turn it into a fridge or a shipping container. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, one of the places I think that, that that goes wrong and you have to, you don't have to, you're compelled to take out the power tools is when somebody doesn't understand that the plant they're putting in the ground wants to grow up to be a Rottweiler. And they put it in the space where a Yorkie would fit. So I'm looking out my window right now at a beautiful plant, uh, Lysianthus. It's a blue-flowered nightshade. And it's a beautiful plant. I'm sure it would grow where you are as well. It's in the sweet potato family. So the sweet potato family or the nightshade family? Potato family or sweet potato family? Um, uh, it, it, used, it used to be called Solanum, Solanum rantanetti. Yeah. Potato vine, Solanum. Um, but then this salon is sweet potato not morning glory, or am I wrong there? Uh, I'm sorry, not sweet you potato. Meant potato. It's called potato vine. Uh, or I know the one you mean. Yeah, it's Peruvian, Peruvian nightshade. It's uh, it's a coin size blue flower. Anyway, the one outside my window is eight feet tall, and I'm looking over. It's probably about eight feet wide. It's in a bed that's 10 feet deep. Mm. So it can go ahead and do its thing all it wants. And when it reaches its mature size, it looks glorious. Mm. And once in a while, I trim it back, but not because I need to shape it, but because it's got enough space to do its mm. thing. People will buy a plant when it's in a little one-gallon container because it's like, ooh, shiny. And they take it home and they look for a space in their garden and they dig a hole and they stick it in the ground. If they're really good, they put it green side up. <laughs> you know, they've been paying attention. And then the plant starts growing and it tries to uh, achieve it, its, oh, what's, what's the phrase? Uh, every plant has its genetic destiny, mm -hmm. right? It's in the DNA. You could take star pine tree or whatever and try to talk it into growing in a window box mm -hmm. and you're going to have a hard time doing it, you know? So understanding a plant's genetic destiny, a plant's predictable mature size to me is the absolute starting point for any garden design and plant selection. Otherwise, you're signing a lifelong contract with that plant to prune it and keep it to a size where it doesn't get in the walkway or go over your neighbor's fence or get in the way of something else and swallow them up. Are you able to bleep? Of course. I should yes, ask. we do bleep. Because there's only... Because there's only one term for it, and it starts with cluster, <laughs> and then there's a four-letter word after it, which I will now pronounce out loud, giving you plenty of time to reach the button. Cluster. <laughs> when everything just you know grows into this undifferentiated mass, and you, you at the this is ironic at the adult education campus where I used to teach, there's a hedge that is oh probably. 60 to 80 feet from one end to the other. And I started looking at it closely. And it's just this one thing that looks kind of like uh, the Hindenburg just before it crashed, you know, just a big blimp or dirigible. And I counted, I think it was seven different, totally different species of plants 
that had glommed together into this one big mass that was now being shaped into this one giant sausage. So, you know, that's because the plants all got too big and somebody panicked and they just started cutting them. When that happens, my advice to, to potential clients is to take a few out. You know, pick your favorites, call out the ones that were too close and let the star performers achieve their, their full size and plant something small and decorative, you know, at their feet or in between if you need to fill some space. Yeah. But yeah, understanding how big a plant wants to get and respecting that and, and allowing for it is the key to avoiding having to whip out the hedge trimmers. Absolutely. And do you think it's easy to return a plant's natural shape once you've done that first hedging cut? Rarely. Yeah, rarely. Um, uh, I was just visiting a client today. They had a guava, sidium, P-S-I-D-I-U-M, sidium bush, small tree, whatever. It was probably about 10 feet tall and a pretty dense canopy around it. And I started kind of peering inside and was thrilled to see that it still had fabulous bone structure. It had natural branches that tapered from uh, a heavier trunk to, you know, smaller branches to smaller twigs, et cetera. And it was, it could achieve redemption. And uh, I, I told them I would love to have a hand at this. My backstory, what got me into horticulture is bonsai. When I was in my when, well, when I was a kid through junior high into high school, I was a drummer, percussionist, musician, and continued doing that professionally for years in Hollywood. And through some very strange synergies or, or events coming together, I discovered bonsai, which got me interested in Japanese gardens, which got me back to school studying horticulture. So pruning and seeing the natural form of plants is just in my blood. If I believed in reincarnation, I, I would know that I was a Japanese gardener, you know, a couple of centuries yeah. ago. <laughs> so your question was, can you redeem plants? It depends. If they've been stub cut for 20 years and it just goes from a trunk to these tiny little fingers, it would be like, you know, a person who has their full-size torso and the next branch coming out were, fin- were, mm. were, were your little pinky yeah. fingers. You know, there's a point at which you just tear the thing out or uh, wait for a delivery truck driver to back over it or something. I, I've been known to bribe a, or try to bribe a couple of UPS drivers, the uh, United Parcel Service, and see if they would back over some of these plants <laughs> for me. But hasn't happened yet. No, you might have to do the dirty work yourself. But there's something intrinsically beautiful about what you're saying about how the branches branch and then those branches get branches, it's essentially a fractal pattern and something deep in the back of our minds find that yeah. very pleasing to be looking at those fractal patterns. Oh, absolutely. You know, when we go out into nature and we look at big, beautiful trees, well, there, there's two types. The ones that have been ravaged by nature, mm. you know, they've been struck by lightning and branches have fallen off and all that sort of thing. And there's kind of an awesome beauty about that. And in fact, a lot of bonsai is inspired by that. There's a style that's called struck by lightning. I can't remember the Japanese term for it, you know, where the, the top of the tree is is bleached and sharpened and it looks like something hit it. But that whole, you know, people look at what infuriates me is when I see there'll be a, a post at Crimes Against Horticulture and it's just your typical kind of poodle ball drumsticks at the end of a of a plant and somebody calls it bonsai and it just infuriates me because it's so far from what bonsai aspires to, which is a rescaling of natural forms, you know, with some embellishment. Uh, there's, there's bonsai that look perfectly natural. There's some that are obviously stylized, but they still understand what, how nature would grow that plant. And then they interpret it a different way. So, yeah, that that stepping down from the crown of the plant. We're uh, using bonsai again as an example. One of the things you look for before you even purchase a plant for bonsai is it has this beautiful taper where the trunk meets the soil, and if it doesn't flare out, it it just looks like somebody stuck a post and put it in the ground. It doesn't look natural. A real tree. You know, there's that place where the crown starts turning into the roots and it's up a little bit above mm-hmm. the soil. 
And then it gradually tapers down where your lowest branches are the heaviest ones. And as you get to the crown of the plant, those are the younger branches. So naturally, they're going to be smaller diameter and, and more twigs. Absolutely. And that's what we aspire to in pruning. You know, where, where, when a plant is a specimen plant, you know, that's how we treat it. There's a level of respect there and a level of education. And yeah, not anyone can just pick up a power tool and call themselves a horticulturist. Well, I, I don't think you, yeah. Uh, I think the power tools already change the game. As soon as you pick up a power tool, you are restricted by what that tool can do. You can't take a, you know, a five horsepower hedge trimmer and mm. delicately go inside a plant and remove these two twigs that are crossing each other. That's handwork any more so than, you know, an industrial baker can turn out every loaf by hand and coax it and, uh, mm. you know, that sort of thing. The tool that you pick up dictates what you get to do. And as soon as you reach for the power tools, yeah, that's what you Would get. Would you put the chainsaw in the same category as the hedger in terms of like bad power tools? Because you can be very selective with that. Well, again, you know, the... The, you can, well, I, I've seen people do, I haven't been in their presence, but you've seen ice sculptures, right. you know, where people take a giant block of ice and they use a small electric chainsaw and they sculpt and, and all of that. So, it, yeah, it's less the tool than the person who's wielding it. And if you're working on a really big tree, I don't expect somebody to take out their Felco pruners and spend the next three months trying to gnaw through a a 12 inch diameter branch, some places you got to, you need some strength. So yeah, I, if you're working at a large scale, you would be using larger scale, more powerful tools, but it's still your intent as an artist, or at least as a horticulturist to to try to retain or reclaim some natural form to that Mm, plant. Absolutely. And I do want to give that shout out to Falco. Make sure you guys go and listen to episodes 42 and 43 with Blaze from Falco talking about pruners, how to maintain them and how to choose them. So Falco is a fantastic brand. Ah, yes. We love Falco here. You know, for, for years and years, when I go, I'm a landscape architect. So when I go out on planting day, because I usually, I try to insist, I try to convince all my clients that on planting day, don't leave it to the contractor to set the plants out. Mm. The plan is a guideline and all those circles are a guideline. But once you step on the property and you start moving plants around, there needs to be some room for improv. You know, lines of sight are different, spacing's different. I've always got pruners by my side, my Felcos, and I'm already starting to train the garden for what I, I know I want it to look like in three mm-hmm. years, five years before the plants even go on the ground. Because if I've got a plant that's got just, you know, wonky branches going in the wrong place or it's going off too far to the left side or something like that, I'll correct that before it even gets planted. The the, the big trick I learned recently, I've been doing this for, you know, dozens, dozens of of years. And uh, one day on the job, one of the guys who was the installer had this tiny little whetstone, you know, like you use for sharpening knives in his pocket. And about every 10 cuts that he did with this, he took the thing out and he was just gently making love to the branch, uh, to the uh, blade of his Felcos, keeping them nice and sharp. And boy, I've been enjoying keeping that around in my bag of tricks. I'll imagine as someone who's very relaxed, to say the least, with the sharpening of the pruners, I imagine that would be very nice to (laughs) Uh constantly have sharp pruners because I'm not good at that. Yeah. I'm the same way in the kitchen. (laughs) Love to cook and I love having yeah, short knives. But yeah, oh, I'm getting better. I I have put on my hand on my heart. Now when I cut the tomato, I do go and rinse the knife straight away because I've learned that tomatoes are one of the things that really blunten off your off your stainless knives because of the, yeah, I think it's just the acid, I guess. Huh. I yeah, you think that. it's like all mechanical dulling, but I think the acid well, helps. Like helps to break down the... Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it probably has an effect on it. Break down the metals a little bit. Exactly. You're alluding to formative pruning there. Can you tell us about the power of pruning plants when they're young, especially trees and shrubs, as opposed to once they're already full size? When you say the, the, the power, you just mean the, the benefits of, of starting, starting young? Yeah, like that's essentially it. Yeah, why, why would someone 
prune a tree when it's young as opposed to just waiting? Oh, uh, well, one of the one of the tricks I learned in bonsai, which I apply to a lot of things, when you start with a young tree and you want to get the the lower trunk fat as fast as possible, you know, have it give it some girth so it's got uh, so it looks like it's a, a couple of hundred years old. You will leave some lower branches that may not be there when the plant is finally ready for display. You know, when when the when the plant is done, so mm-hmm. to speak, and it's ready for its coming out party, we will continue to leave some lower branches because they help to thicken and fatten up the trunk faster than if you lion's tail or skim the plant so that the first branches are where they will event you know eventually be. So it, it's a uh, misconception on trees that you that if you strip them up toward the top, they'll get taller faster. Mm. They might get taller, but you're going to end up with a, a very weak trunk. So leaving extra branches on, even if you cut them back a little bit, but I guess what it's doing physiologically is allowing more of the the juices. I'm not using my best botanical term here. <laughs> uh, just more of the nutrients to find their way and reside in the trunk and fill it up. But as for pruning them, yeah, uh, I think, again, back to bonsai, one of the things we look for, and I think this applies to any, not your basic bushy shrub, there's going to be hundreds of branches in there. So you'd go nuts trying to you know select this one or that one. But a few of the basic rules of pruning, which I think any shrub or any tree deserves, well, first thing you need to know what the character of the plant is naturally. There's a lot of plants that will send out secondary branches and twigs from the bottom, from the sides, from the top. And if you let them all grow, that may not be the form that you want. It may be something that's going to overhang a walkway, whatever. So if you wanted to create a tree with kind of an up and out growth pattern, I start by selectively taking any branch that's pointing in the direction, that's starting from the direction that I know I don't want it to to go later. So like if I were doing a weeping tree, uh, you're familiar with Jigera? What's the common name? Called Australian willow here. Oh, okay. Australian willow, a lot of fine leaves. Uh, Anyway, it has a tendency to send out twigs from everywhere. But if I want it to grow kind of up and arch out, you know, sort of like an umbrella, this sounds counterintuitive. You don't leave the downward facing twigs you prune to an up Mm. and out bud at the end. So it grows up. And then when it gets longer and heavier, gravity naturally curves it back down. So it ends up with a graceful look. So back to, so, so one of the things is to prune, you always prune to the bud that's facing the direction where you want the plant to keep going. Another is I always get rid of internally crossing branches. If a branch, if there's a, call it the left quadrant of a plant when you're, when you're looking at it from wherever your viewpoint is, if there's a twig or a branch, if the main branch is going off to the left, but there's a very aggressive, strong growing branch that's coming from the left side, across the middle, all the way over, and is starting to stick out on the right side. I don't just trim it at the canopy of the tree. I go all the way to where it started and take it out completely because then Mm -hmm. that plant's energy on that branch is going to be directed where I want that plant to go. The other reason I'll do some pruning is to try to create a good radial branching pattern if I were looking down on it from the top. So this is hard to do with it without a sketch, but picture you're starting, you're looking straight at a, a new plant that's going to be a tree, and your first branch is coming off to the left, and it's coming from, if we were looking down on it, it's coming from three o'clock on the wheel. Mm. You know, it's coming kind of forward and to the right. My next branch, I want to be substantially higher than that first one. And I might want it going back and to the left. And then the next branch is going to go back and to the right. And the next one's going to come forward to the left. So what you're doing is not only staggering the branches from bottom to top, but you're also kind of equally filling the view from above. So there's a wedge coming out in each direction. You do that, you get a very nicely balanced plant. 
So if there were three brand, I'm, I'm doing this right now on a uh, redbud tree, a Canadian redbud. It's uh, Cercis canadensis that's growing in my front yard. Unfortunately, it was trained on a nursery stake so that there were no back branches. And there's like three branches coming all from the left and then two branches all coming from the right. It looks very two-dimensional. So I've been training, uh, I've been cutting back a few major branches to a bud that's going to come toward me. I've been training a few branches just using stakes and strings to pull them in a different direction so that when I look down from the top, it's not just this fan going out in two directions. So those are reasons to, to prune early on. And another is, uh, is to, this, uh, my, my clients hate me for this, but when I get a plant like a five-gallon size shrub that's in full glorious color and flowers bursting out of it, I cut all the flowers off because all that energy is going into flower and seed production, and I need it to, to develop a strong mm-hmm. root system first. So I get cursed once in a while, but I explain to them. and uh, It's a long-term game. Usually works out okay. So th- those are, I think those are some basic reasons is just to establish armature, the skeleton uh, of the plant, and then you let it grow for a while. Yeah, you just have more control when it's young as opposed to waiting till all that energy has already been spent. You know, um, the tree's already stuck in its own habit. You know, when we get it young, that's how you prune for... Right. You know, it's obviously not the best practice to be planting trees underneath power lines or anything like that, but that is how you can get those branches. <laughs> It'd be impossible to wait till the tree already has 10-year-old, you know, lateral growth and then try and train a tree shape after that. It's much easier when it's young. Yeah, then it just looks like somebody laying on their back with their feet, with their legs spread. <laughs> it does look like and that. And you can make, actually, make, of yeah. what you, make what you wish of that. <laughs> Let me say back to crimes against horticulture. Anyone listening to this who's heading over to that page, shield your children's <laughs> eyes because some of the captions do get a, yeah. a little bit vulgar, <laughs> shall we it's say? It's all good fun. Yeah. Good adult fun. And then there's one of my absolute favorite photos that somebody either sends to me or I dredge it up at Christmas time is a giant Canary Island palm tree. They're the ones with the really big, thick trunks, you know, like two, three feet across. And they're often trimmed at the top so mm. that there's only a few fronds coming out, but you end up with this large engorged mm. pineapple-like head at the top of a cylindrical staff. <laughs> and the tree has been decorated with, with twinkle lights all the way out to the ends of the fronds. <laughs> and uh, that usually gets somewhere in the neighborhood. That usually gets somewhere in the neighborhood of 12,000 views and about three or 400 shares around Christmas time. So if you're interested in uh, joining Crimes Against Horticulture, watch for that this coming December. <laughs> coming to a theater near you, an aroused palm tree. Let's leave that image in our listeners' minds without delving on that too much, because yes, that is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fine. We're pruning plants when they're young to establish a shape before we sort of let them get out of hand on us. We're respecting the plant's natural habit. You know, we're educating ourselves on ways to prune. And one of my favorite resources to send people to when they're wanting to learn more about pruning is plant amnesty. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Cass Turnbull's work. Oh, yes. We uh, we hung out at the Seattle uh, Flower and Garden Show uh, a couple of times. Yeah, she's passed on, unfortunately. Uh, I'm trying to remember the founder's name. Cass Turnbull, wasn't it? uh, And she passed on. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we had some very nice moments together comparing notes. Plant Amnesty is a great place. They're not quite as snarky. They're, they're a little more serious about it, but they still have some fun. No, there's learning the three different places you can cut a branch was one of the most important lessons in horticulture I've ever learned. So selective, non-selective heading and removal cuts. So it has a lot to do with pruning to a fork, but that's for another episode and you really need to go and look at the diagram. So if this has piqued your, li- your interest as a listener, I would urge you to check out the show notes or even just YouTube search Cass Turnbull Plant Amnesty. Yeah, um, very, very educational. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing, you know, some plants you could prune at a certain location on the branch and they'll just be happy and respond and throw out some new growth and other plants mm-hmm you cut back into the same apparent wood 
and it gives up. So, you know, knowing where to prune and what a, the uh, the buds, the new buds are going to look like and where they're going to come from and how close you can cut mm-hmm. to them. It's all very important. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things with shearing that happens is, you know, once you decide that your hedge between your home and your sidewalk is going to be whatever, three feet wide, and you just robotically, every time a twig comes out, cut to the mm. same exact place, eventually that twig gives up and there's no more buds. And that's when uh, the plant just starts dying off from the inside, usually from the bottom, because there's no regeneration from further inside the plant so that you've got you know a decent amount of leaves that are photosynthesizing and charging the plant mm. back up. I teach people a technique I call... Uh, baby bear, mama bear, papa bear. And for the plants that can tolerate that, papa bear is the maximum edge of the plant. Um, At some point, I'll go in randomly around the plant and prune six inches, eight inches, 10 inches inside of the outline of the plant, depending on what the plant is, so that a new bud starts growing further in. A year later, it's about halfway to the edge of the plant. That's the, the mama bear. And then when it finally reaches the outer area, it's got more twi- it's got more twigs to itself. It's got more foliage. So I'm constantly recycling a plant from the inside by taking a percentage of the pla- plant back hard and allowing it to start over and grow out. Thing is leaving a square hedge a little bit wider at the base than at the top, just slightly like a pyramid. Then you get more sunlight reaching the lower growth, because what often happens is we tend to make a plant wider at the top than the bottom. The bottom gets shaded by the top, and that accelerates the uh, the loss of growth. And I think the last thing in maintaining any uh, clipped hedge is making sure your soil is healthy and vital. And that gets hard to do when you, when you plant things a few feet apart initially. You could imagine if you had x-ray vision, there'd just be this mass of roots down there that, that consume a lot of the soil. And you need to find a way to aerate, get some nutrients down in there. Mulching helps. I use a spading fork. Just It's like a heavy-duty pitchfork with, with uh, strong flat blades where it's like a shovel, but you cut out most of, the, uh, you know, of the, the blade of the shovel. So wherever I can, I take one of those when the soil's a little bit moist, push it down as far as I can, rock it back and forth, and create these like uh, drill holes or, or channels down in. And if you do clip a root or two, that's okay. It stimulates more root growth. But that's one way of getting water and nutrients and organic material down into the uh, deeper part of a a plant's root system. And it would be important to use a fork sort of a system rather than a full-on bladed um, spade because if you're cutting with a full spade, you're going to be severing a lot more roots and that's probably not the sort of – Yes, That's not the root pruning we're looking for. Mm-hmm. I do it in my vegetable garden, you know, uh, a couple times per season. I just go down. Uh, it, it, it cuts mm. like butter because I've got really good soil now in my vegetable garden. But I'll just go down like a foot from my Swiss mm. shard, go down deep, rock it back and forth, mulch over the surface, uh, let the hose run, soak down deep. And uh, it's just it just enlivens the soil tremendously. Well, I would urge our listeners to go and check out episode two, Intro to Soil with Dr. Sam Grover, because there is a lot to learn about soil. And it's probably one of the most important things in horticulture. Well, it is. I mean, the old saying is plant a, uh, a $1 plant in a $10 hole. That's a great one. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people that promise bigger fruit, larger fruit, etc., with uh, the uh, chemical fertilizers that are basically just petrochemicals. They kill the real life in the soil. What you're trying to do is keep all the microorganisms, the the beneficial fungi, that whole network of stuff vital and alive. And and you don't have to do any more work than that. You don't have to add heaps of fertilizer. Compost and organic soil is the way to go. Absolutely. Just uh, we're trying to do things the way nature does it. She knows what's best. Yep. A colleague of mine, actually Owen Dell, who uh, was the co-founder of of uh, Garden Wise Guys. No, now I'm trying to think of the phrase that he used. Oh, well, okay. Uh, I mean, the point is that you're trying to create a garden that's as close to a natural system as possible. Mm-hmm. So the fewest the fewest extra inputs, whether that's fertilizer, water, pesticides, fuel, all that sort of thing, 
and to try to reduce uh, the negative output. So as close as you can get to a natural system, plants benefit, we all benefit. It's mm-hmm. less work and uh, it's just going to be better for the planet. Work smarter, not harder, as they say. I like that. <laughs> so, Billy, you mentioned lion's tailing there. I just want to circle back and touch on what does lion's tailing or lollipopping mean? Well, turn on your favorite David Attenborough safari uh, documentary or, or whatever. A lion's tail is very, uh, I haven't been that close to lions. I should, uh, a disclaimer here, uh, we don't hang out a lot. A lion's tail is very fine, short fur the entire length of the tail, and at the end is like a feather duster, you know, just the the longer fur, like a horse's mane or that sort of thing. That is a lion's tail. And, God, so many of the crimes against horticulture that show up are just these bare shafts with a little poof of something at the top. It's just not a plant anymore. You know, the only way I can forgive that is if you are a conceptual artist and you happen to be using plants to create sculptural forms and you know what you're doing and you have something to Mm. say, fine. I apologize to the plant. You know, you should say some sort of prayer ahead of time so you're not struck by lightning and go ahead and shape the plants however you like. But you need to be an artist with a concept and technique because you're going to probably hasten that plant's death anyway. So, you know, you can see lion's tailing in that example I said where people just strip a tree, uh, a young tree, in hopes that those few twigs at the top are going to get taller faster. The other thing is just those puff balls like, uh, you know, a 1950s groomed French poodle where there's puff at the end of the tails and puffs at the end of the feet and that sort of thing. I don't get it. You know, as my mother used to say, you have your opinion and I'll have the right one. <laughs> So, you know, if if you're getting joy out of a garden that triggers my gag reflex, you're allowed to do that. I just wish you would only do it in your backyard. My my wife is, uh, let's see, uh, Australia. Which side of the, the car do you drive from? Left. Brit or? Uh, the correct way. Feature. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We're going to have to debate about that. <laughs> Well, well, whichever driver's side. Oh, the driver's side, yeah, the right side. the The steering was on the right side. We drive on the left. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, the person sitting on your left in the passenger seat, their right ear. If you were my wife, would have a severe hearing loss because I scream out loud (laughs) when I'm driving past some of these crimes against horticulture, and her ear is, you know, only inches from me. What were we talking about before I went down that rabbit hole? Lollipopping. Lion's tail. Well, well, it's the same. Yeah, same thing. Oh, well, you were going to say it's, it's not just but ugly. It's not just ugly. It's also bad for the plant's health, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, a leaf is a plant solar collector. And the more you restrict that, the less, the less vitality that plant is going to have. And, you know, the, 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 there's a price to be paid for that. Absolutely. And it's usually a premature death of the plant. Plants have evolved these fractal patterns because that is how they get sunlight the best. They don't want to be traveling nutrients and sugars and stuff like that up these huge long channels, which are their branches, without any new input from leaves the whole way along that branch until they get to this little puddle at the end where most of those leaves are shaded anyway because they're all shading each other. So it's just an incredibly inefficient way for a plant to try and grow. Exactly. Yeah, and you know... There, there's a serviceable amount of time that a leaf can do its work. And just like the way we slough off skin, there's a point at which a leaf is not going to be as productive. And if we're not allowing it to regenerate these new solar collectors, you know, these fresh young leaves that, that are optimum performers, again, you're just accelerating the demise of the plant. It just gives up after a while. Absolutely. If a tree isn't growing out, it's energies are going sucking back in and it is in decline so trees always want to be on the up and up they always want to be growing out they never want to be stopping to grow out otherwise the second they stop they're collapsing in on themselves yeah which is another argument for knowing how big a plant wants to be when it grows up and not putting it in a place where it has to constantly be pruned to stay out of your way or you Mm. know not hang over the roof or 
uh, get hit by trucks when they overhang the street and that sort of thing. Absolutely. So what about things like grasses and mat rushes and stuff like that? Do you like the dome pruning look or do you like to prune them right to the ground? Yes and neither. Well, the the not every grass or grass-like plant, uh, I think the term is coppicing, if I remember from my old horticulture classes, and coppicing is when you C-O-P-I-C-E or something like that, is when you cut a plant completely to the ground and it comes back, fingers crossed. There's some plants that will do that reliably, and there's some plants that if you cut them back, uh, they're going to flip you the middle finger and you're not going to see them again. So there's no universal statement on how to cut them back. Some don't want to be cut back at all. I have uh, a formium, again, outside my window here, that if I were to cut it completely to the ground, I would be very wary of how many more years mm. it would take if it came back to reestablish itself. There's this fabulous coffee shop not far from here where some moron planted, do you know, Chondropetalum tectorum, Cape reed? It's from South Africa. Beautiful reed-like plant. Yeah, it gets a, can get anywhere from chest high and five or six feet across once the the leaves or the whatever we call the blades, you know, once they've grown up and out, they can be five or six feet across. Somebody put it in a two foot wide planter between the curb of the street and the sidewalk. There, It's a no win situation because in order to see traffic and allow people to walk by, the gardeners continually cut them to the ground, but not completely. They, they've been cutting them, oh, about 18 inches tall, which is the worst thing you can do because then you see all the dead inner or the dying inner growth turning brown while the new growth is starting to come up from it. So with plants like, and these are local examples, uh, the pe- some of the penicetum or fountain grass some of them, well, first of all, if it's an annual, if it's a grass that goes brown and dormant in the winter time, I cut it absolutely to the ground as close as I can. Because if I leave the stubs, I see that dead plant material mixed with what should be all that fresh new growth coming out. There's uh, some red-leafed or purple-leaf varieties of, uh, of fountain grass that are completely ruined by somebody cutting them off about knee high. And then you see all this beautiful new growth trying to do battle with the straw that's in the center of it. So first of all, you need to know that plant's behavior and how it will respond to being cut back. And if you know it's going to come roaring back, then I I say cut them completely to the ground. In winter? Yeah. Well, when, when when they stop giving is what I tell clients. There's okay. people who enjoy the seasonality of something like a miscanthus grass or a fountain grass turning brown, remaining brown through the winter, um, adding that dimension to the garden. And then in the spring, when you know you're ready to hit the reset button, then you take it down at the first signs of growth. There's other schools of thought, uh, other aesthetics where at the beginning of winter or whatever, you take them all the way down to the ground and now your garden has twice as much open space as it had before. That three-dimensional aspect of a garden where over time it goes for, uh, especially plants that are either deciduous and come back or plants that die to the ground and come back again. It's this wonderful reproportioning of mass and space. And I really enjoy that in gardens. There's other people who I design gardens for who don't ever want to see a brown leaf uh, or see a flower. They want it performing like a a Dutch tulip calendar, you know, 365 days a year. And there's no right or wrong about that. But I like when a garden is transformed from from that winter look to to the new spring growth. We have so little in the way of seasons here in Southern California, and I'm sure it's it's similar in, in uh, many parts of Australia. We don't get those New England fall color, you know, uh, and then a blanket of snow and maple trees and all that sort of stuff. Horse, horses pulling sleds through snow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we get the color in Melbourne, but 
in a lot of Australia, we yeah. don't. There's not much of a change between the seasons. But would you say that a hedge trimmer would be well used cutting a, a grass like a fountain grass, or we call them foxtail grasses sometimes? Cutting that to the ground, like I think of that as being a great place to use a hedge trimmer. What do you think about that? As long as it's sharp. Yeah, as long as it's sharp and it, and it does the job, it's a very expedient way of doing it. Either that or you get your Grim Reaper scythe, you know, and you do it the old-fashioned way. Okay, cool, <laughs> cool. I, I've occasionally resorted to one of my wife's bread knives, serrated knife, Yeah. <laughs> uh, to get through things. Uh, and then she sends me to the thrift <laughs> store and I have to get my own and replace the- uh, Get a new one. The really good one, so- <laughs> I learned that lesson quickly. So yeah, you know, the right, uh, <laughs> we talk about right plant, right place, right tool for the right job. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one of my favorite jokes, uh, when I've got a client and I'm advising them regarding some tree pruning, I'll often send them the name of some certified arborist who, who I'm familiar with. And the analogy I use mm -hmm. is you've got a tree service, which just means the person can afford a truck a chainsaw and a magnetic mm -hmm. sign on the side of it. And you can hire a certified arborist or somebody with training. And the analogy I use is that I'm probably allowed to buy dental surgery instruments, but I'm a landscape architect. So mm -hmm. you probably don't want to open your mouth mm -hmm. and let me in any more than somebody who <laughs> claims to be a tree service and stub cuts trees and, you know, basically mm. turns them into monstrosities that'll drop branches years later. There's a big difference between the low bid and uh, somebody who knows what they're doing. Yep. You, you get what you pay for. And just because a tree doesn't die today doesn't mean that it's not mm. in decline. There's two trees up the block. One is a tree called a shamel ash, and shamel ashes can get 100 feet tall here and you know equal spread. And the other are Chinese elms, Ulmus uh, parvifolia. And there's one okay house between the two of these. But each of these have trunks that are, oh, at least two to three feet in diameter. And they were cut so that the smallest branch is the size of my torso. You know, that's what they cut back to. There's no tapering of branches. Uh, each of them for the past yeah. year has been turning into what looks like a shaggy dog or uh, cousin it from the Adams mm -hmm. family. You know, they're just covered with these yeah. twigs. And now some real branches are growing out of these giant stub cuts. And the next big wind, you know, a few years from now, yeah. those are all going to snap off because there's going to be like a hundred branches coming out of this one cut and they just don't, they just don't work. So that's the difference between uh, an arborist and a tree service. Absolutely. We've touched on epicormic growth in this podcast mm -hmm. on episode, let me just check. Well, that's got a lot of syllables. You're losing me here. Oh, am I? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I know what that is. That's pruning. Yeah, it's um, epicormic growth. Yeah, okay. Yeah, epicormic growth. I'll just find which episode it was. In episode 34, Spotting Risky Trees with Gary Moran, we were talking about epicormic growth, which is basically like the buds that are beneath the bark. So oh, if, yeah. you, if, you, if it's a bushfire or something like that, or like the topping type of cuts you're talking about where you leave a stub, right. the only growth that can happen is these buds that are down beneath the bark, and they're not ideal they're a plant's backup system they're not what a plant wants to be using in in mainly right and they're very and they have very weak attachments yes. and if you let them keep growing you can have just a sudden branch drop years later mm -hmm. that can take out a kid playing underneath yes. or a car window or whatever they'll just snap in the in the wind yeah very bad uh pruning technique there are plants that we have in Australia, they're called flaxes. Maybe New Zealand flaxes or Australian flax, and you yeah, bars yeah. them. Uh, so you prune the yes. So you prune the outside leaves to give it like as if it's in a vase, and um, the new leaves are sort of right, a little right. bit more erect than floppy, and that seems to look best oh, gotcha. for them. They don't look good when you prune them down to the ground. No, no, they they often don't come back. I'm familiar with a lot of different flaxes, but some of them have a natural character where there's just this nice gentle arching. Some of them tend to be stiffer mm -hmm. and just naturally more upright growing. So I think even there, you need to be a little bit selective mm. about trying to make a plant do something that it wouldn't naturally do. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, you know, tra training a dog to fly or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but you got me thinking now, I'm looking at, I have a beautiful, it's a soft yellow variegation. This variety mm -hmm. is called uh, Formium Yellow Wave. 
I think. And it's just this wonderful chartreuse green with some uh, a, br- a broad band of yellow in it. And I'm realizing I've got uh, quite a few of the older blades just resting on the ground. So it needs a little cleanup, just like you just dis- described. That's good. Uh, I've got it planted alongside the Myers asparagus, which is also that really nice soft yellow green color. It's a real nice combination. That's beautiful. Because color is one of the most important things when you're designing a landscape for aesthetics. Absolutely. But uh, but color color doesn't have to be flowers. And a lot of people yeah. miss that, you know, because flowers are fleeting. And having a, a, one of my philosophies, and I teach uh, my students this, is design your garden as if it'll never flower. Make it interesting based on foliage color, the form, the different shapes, the leaf texture, big leaves, small leaves. Create interest. And then when the flowers come, that's the icing on the cake. But a garden, so I true. think, unless it's a, unless it's a perennial bed, that is just about flowers. Mm. Garden has to stand on its own, whether it's flowering or not. Totally. And we've got some beautiful barks out there too in Australia with our eucalypts and we've got oh, crepe yeah. myrtles and stuff like that. Are there any particularly spectacular plant fails that you've seen in the group? Plant fails? I yeah, crimes. Yeah. We can call them crimes. Oh, I don't quite know where to start. Well, certainly the uh, Christmas lighted palm tree. <laughs> That's a good one. Is right in there. There's a, you were talking about crepe myrtle. Crepe, uh, is, is that a Aussie native? I don't think it's native, but we have a lot of them in Melbourne. No. There seems to be this, this, mala- this, this dis- mental disease in the southern parts of the United States, like Texas. Louisiana, Mississippi area where, where crepe myrtles do really well. And it's just called crepe murder. And there's this belief among gardeners that crepe myrtles have to be cut back all the way to the trunk every year in order to grow these long whips so that they'll flower. And I've seen some of the most heinous examples of those. They're always being posted at Crimes Against Horticulture and other places. But uh, if people are interested, just type the words crepe, C-R, uh, it's sometimes spelled C-R-E-P-E, sometimes C-R-A-P-E. But if you are, you can do it right now while you're sitting there because you got your computer on, type in crepe murder. And that's probably some of the most uneducated, proliferating, heinous crimes that I see is what people do to those. And yes, it's true that if you cut it back completely to stubs and you end up with all of these whips coming out afterwards, they will have a lot of flowers on them. But the the result are just these totally distorted plants that look like, like the worst case of arthritic knuckles mm. uh, that you'd ever want to see. So those are right up there with the fails. Oh, uh, I have a fun one that just I started recirculating. Uh, it, it's it's actually here in my neighborhood. Somebody stub cut a, a mature old tree. So you've got, oh, probably 10 or so major branches that are a foot in diameter. And then they appear to have gone up on a ladder, drilled holes into uh, the cut part of the trunk and put white plastic artificial daisies in the end of the stub. So if you get to face if you get to Facebook in the next few days, I think that one just started coming around again. What happened I'm I don't know the algorithms or whatever for Facebook, but it appears that if something's kind of been archived and you know is is a few years old and somebody discovers it and comments on it, it somehow moves up and people start seeing it again. So it starts like a second generation of that. That's one of my favorites. And I'm often drawn into debates. Somebody in some little village in England has a hedge that's pruned to look like Thomas the Tank Engine or a giant caterpillar or something like that. And I'm and they post it there as a crime against horticulture. And I say no. If the plant is healthy, if they have a sense of artistry and they did it with intention. You know, they knew what they were doing. That's perfectly okay with me. They're using plants as a, uh, you know, as a vehicle for expression. And if nobody gets hurt, that one's okay with me. 
Around here, junipers are one of the most maligned plants. And that's because the ones that are supposed to be ground covers, like the ones that grow, that would grow 12, 18 inches tall and 15 feet across, are put in three and four foot wide parking strips. Mm. So as soon as they start crossing over to the concrete or out to the street, they just get boxed, hedged. So that's where the shipping container look comes from. And, you know, all I can do is kind of shake my head and realize that until they die on their own, we're all going to be stuck with that. And especially with coniferous plants, because when you cut into the the brown wood of them, then they don't sprout back uh, generally as a general rule. Yeah, they'll just die back. Uh, and that's and that's when the last resort before ripping them out is turning whatever remaining growth is there into lion's yeah. tails or a little poodle poofs. You, you just hope for a little bit of growth at the end and you strip everything else down. There's one, uh, uh, I'm going to assume that with your massive group of listeners here, a few people are going to come over to uh, cr- Crimes Against Horticulture in the next few days. So I'm going to be real busy for the next few days after recording this, but this isn't going to be on the air be for, another week. for be a little ne- while. I'm right? going to fast forward this one another for next week. week. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can take my greatest hits, and I will say a post dedicated to you and your show, and here's some of my top picks, and, and uh, you'll get a little uh, plug out of that, and, and we'll uh, get a whole lot of Aussie traffic. Thanks, Billy. And I hope all of our listeners did hear that and you don't embarrass me. Go and show, make sure you go and show up. <laughs> I want Billy to see in his analytics a big spike on the day that we release this episode. Uh, yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> and as long as I'm here, I, I should plug my book. Yes. What else would you like the listeners to know about? Final question. Quite a few years ago, uh, I wanted to get out on the road and be a, a high paid traveling speaker, you know, show up in New York City and be taken around town and. Waldorf Hotel and, you know, speak in a dark room to to millionaires and then give workshops and all of that. And I thought to myself, no one's going to hire Billy Goodnick unless he's Billy Goodnick author of. Mm. So my first idea was to create a book called Crimes Against Horticulture When Bad Taste Meets Power Tools. I had this trove of articles I had written for magazines and blogs and things like that, that I would turn into Mm -hmm. essays that would give a more serious worldview of my take on garden design. And it would be interspersed with horrible pictures and snarky captions. And I shopped it around to some of the top garden book publishers here, and they all loved me uh, and said, I wouldn't touch this with a 10 foot pole because where would you shelve it? Is it humor? Is it essays? Is it design? Whatever. Finally, one publisher, St. Lynn's Press uh, came around and said, We'll include Crimes Against Horticulture at the end of a book if you'll write us a design book. And that's where my book came from. It's called Yards, Turn Any Outdoor Space into the Garden of Your Dreams. If you just went to Amazon and typed in Yards, Billy Goodnick, you'd see what the book is. It's written for homeowners who either want to think the way a landscape architect thinks. It teaches you the process. It's not real specific. There's not how to build a walkway or how to design a gazebo. It's why and where you might want to have a gazebo. It's about safety. It's about living outdoors, uh, going from the big idea down to a planting design. So it's written for people who have the courage to do it themselves or someone who's going to hire a professional designer like me, but wants to be fully in the game and wants to really think about all the possibilities before they, they get into it. So it's a fun read. I tell people it's a book equally comfortable on the coffee table, the nightstand, or the porcelain (laughs) tank. (laughs) Billy, thank you so much for coming on for an excellent episode, mate. I hope our listeners have learned a lot about the crimes against horticulture that we can all avoid. You betcha. Well, I am the world's authority on my opinion, (laughs) and uh, I'm always happy to share it. So thanks for finding me and having me on, and I know I'll see you at Facebook. And uh, we'll uh, get a few more eyeballs and ears. YouTube search Garden Wise Guys to check out some of Billy's community TV work and listen to our back catalogue. You might like episode 12, How to Become a Professional Landscaper with Matt Lunn. Episode 36, Choosing and Moving Mulch with Andre Pedroli. 
for episode 3, Native Landscaping with Ben Sims.